We read the Word of God this morning in Acts chapter 2. I notice that that will be your scripture reading this evening also. This evening's text is verse 2, and this morning's text is verses 14 through 21. I want to read this morning through verse 36 of this chapter. Pay special attention as I read verses 14 through 21, that will be our text. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded, because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days. And now you understand Peter is quoting from the Old Testament book of Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your Old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on mine handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or the grave, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, 
would he raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, which he had, no, the promise of the Holy Ghost, he, Christ, has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the reading this morning of the Holy Scripture. What does Pentecost mean today? That's the question that we want to face. That's the question that the multitude asked when they were assembled and saw these strange events on their day of Pentecost. What does this all mean? You see that in verse 12 of chapter 2? They were amazed. They were doubtful. And they said to one another, What meaneth this? And that's the question that we have for us. We understand somewhat what Pentecost meant in the Old Testament. You children in school and in catechism learned that there were seven special feasts celebrated every year in the Old Testament Israel. Seven feasts. One of those important feasts was the Feast of Pentecost, at the very beginning of their harvest, when they brought the first of their harvest in, they returned that harvest to God as a sacrifice of praise. That was the Old Testament Feast of Pentecost. All the harvest had come in, and now they're bringing, no, the first fruits of the harvest had come in, and now they're bringing the beginning of those first fruits back to God. That was the Old Testament Pentecost. What did that mean for them? The children needed to ask their parents, what did this mean? What does this all signify? Now, some thousands of years after that feast was instituted in the Old Testament comes the New Testament fulfillment of that Old Testament feast in Acts chapter 2 on the day that we commemorate today where the Spirit was poured out upon the church and the result of that outpouring was that there was a sound of a loud wind, like a tornado, must have been like a freight train, on the heads of all those gathered together in that upper room were cloven tongues as of fire, and, especially this, they spoke in different languages the wonderful works of God. And it was especially that latter that the people asked, what does that mean? We hear them speak in different languages the wonderful works of God. And these are Galileans. They never studied it. They don't know the Bible program, the, the language program, Babel or Duolingua or whatever they are. They hadn't studied these languages, and yet they're able to speak them. We hear them in our own tongues speaking and prophesying. What does this mean? And so we today ask the very same question. We may learn what it meant for the Old Testament Israelites. We may learn what it meant for the Jews in Acts chapter 2. We also have to ask ourselves, what does this mean for us? Now, Peter stood up and gave a good answer to that question an authoritative answer, a reliable answer, an answer that we need to listen to without understanding, which we will never understand what Pentecost means for us. And by the way, this is a striking thing, isn't it? That when every time a miracle took place in the Old Testament or the New Testament, it was an occasion for truth to be spoken, for doctrine to be explained. In catechism, I won't do that now because it'll startle you, I startle the children by saying a miracle 
And then I pound the desk and everyone gets their attention. They look up and they say, what did you do that for? I say, good, now that I have your attention, I want to explain to you something. That's really what a miracle was in the Old Testament and in the early New Testament. The miracle got everyone's attention. A sound without a wind, but a sound of a wind. Cloven tongues as a fire on the heads of the people. And unlearned men and women able to speak in different languages the wonderful works of God. That gets their attention. And now Peter stands up and says, as it were, I'm glad you asked. Let me explain to you. This is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that all of you are familiar with in the book of Joel. I, God said, many generations before this, prophesied to you that this would happen. This very event would take place. Men and women, old and young, slaves and free, they would all be prophesying of the Scripture. So with that introduction, I want to explain to you the meaning of Pentecost today. And see, in the first place, and now it would be helpful if you look at me while I announce these three points, in the first place, Pentecost means that we receive. See this motion? We receive. Pentecost means in the second place that we return. And Pentecost in the third place means, and now this will be the best motion, I suppose, look up in hope. Pentecost's meaning today is that we receive, that we return, and that we hope. Let me explain all of those three. What is this event the people ask? What explains all of these strange signs? The sound, Prof. Heisinger will explain tonight, we see in the bulletin. The tongues of fire, someone else will explain sometime. But especially the speaking in other tongues, I am interested in explaining this morning. That's what the people were asking especially about. What explains this? And the answer is, very briefly, supernatural work explains it. And nothing natural can explain what they're doing. I put it that way because the people who observed who were unbelieving said it's a natural explanation, a very earthly natural explanation. They're drunk. The explanation of this zeal of the people to speak, the boldness of the people to talk about what God had done, the joy of the people and the unity of the people is all explained by this one simple fact. They drank too much. And Peter said, no, that's not the explanation of the zeal and the joy and the peace and the unity of these people. And you must never try to explain the exuberance and the joy and the interest in God's people to speak about God's works by any earthly thing. Never, never. You must not adopt the view of the unbeliever who says, oh, I understand the personality of Christians. They all fit the same mold. They all have a psychological need for religion. And when that psychological need for religion is fulfilled by that religion, that's what gives them their joy, exuberance, zeal, comfort, confidence, and all of the rest. Peter says, not so. No earthly explanation. But now, the application to that in the second place is that we reverse this and warn you, never try to get what these people had by any other means than by being filled with the Spirit. That is, you must not imbibe spirits in order to have the blessings of salvation, at least superficially. You must imbibe the Spirit. The Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ is what you need. And you understand the distinction between spirits with a lowercase s and spirit with an uppercase s because the Bible makes that distinction. You remember, it's not only here that the two are contrasted. They're drunk with spirits. No, they're not. They're filled with the Spirit. The Apostle 
Paul picks it up later in Ephesians 5 and said to the church, be careful, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Spirits and Spirit. You can never have what you need, comfort, peace, joy, zeal, confidence. When you're fearful, when you're hopeless, when you're troubled, when you're sad, when you're weak, where will you get fearlessness? Where will you get encouragement in your discouragement? Where will you have the comfort and hope and strength that you need? Not out of the end of a bottle or any other earthly means, but by imbibing the Holy Spirit himself. We need to hear that warning. The unbeliever needs to hear this correction. The explanation of what they see in you is no has no earthly explanation. But you and I need to hear this warning. Don't try to have what you need in any other way than by the Spirit. It's the Spirit poured out. That's the explanation. That's what these things mean. God gave His Spirit. After Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and after He arose, and after He ascended into heaven, now the next great event in the life of Christ is that He returns in His Spirit. And when He returned, He poured out that Spirit upon the church. That's what explains the sound, that's what explains the fire, and that's what explains their speaking in different languages. Power and wisdom and knowledge and life and holiness was theirs, theirs, because of the Spirit. Now, when the text is teaching us what these things mean, and you understand the application for today too, the text says that the Spirit is poured out, poured out. That's an important expression, poured out. There are two things that that means, and now it will be helpful to look at my motions also. The Spirit is poured out with a depth that there was not in the past, and with a breadth there had not been experienced before. Both the depth of the Spirit's giving and the breadth of the Spirit's giving are new. Look first at the depth. God gives the Holy Spirit in a richness and a fullness that the Spirit was never given before, that the people of God had not experienced in the Old Testament. Now be very careful here. That's not to say that the people of God didn't have the Spirit in the Old Testament. We must never imagine that the little children and that the women and that the non-office bearers in the Old Testament didn't have the Spirit. Oh, they had the Spirit. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to be alive spiritually. They wouldn't have confessed their faults to their spouses. They wouldn't have repented of their sins to God. They wouldn't have been able to do anything spiritual had they not had the Spirit. And they knew that too. And that's why David said in Psalm 51, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, please. They knew that they had the Spirit. And that wasn't David speaking as an office bearer. It was David speaking as a believer. So you mustn't imagine that the outpouring of the Spirit gave to God's people what they never had at all you must understand that God gave a depth, a richness, a fullness of the Spirit that they hadn't experienced before. In the Old Testament, as it were, uh, the Spirit was sprinkled upon them. In the New Testament, God gives a mighty stream of the Spirit poured out upon them so that they experienced that Spirit in a way that was wonderful and marvelous to them. And then the Spirit is given in a breadth that they hadn't experienced it before. With that depth, now comes a breadth of the Spirit's giving so that the little children have the Spirit. Sons and daughters, as well as parents. The women have the Spirit, as well as the men. In the Old Testament, the women didn't have the Spirit to put them in a position to speak like they can today. The servants, the maidens, the slaves all have 
the Holy Spirit. And then when you're looking at the breadth, you understand this is now the Spirit given not just to the Jews, men and women and boys and girls and old people and young people and servants, but now the breadth of the Holy Spirit's gift is us. We are included in that. The Gentiles received the Spirit. For 4,000 years, the Spirit was given in life and holiness and peace and confidence just to the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, with a few rare exceptions. Now, the tent is being spread and the stakes are way out over Europe and Asia and Africa and Americas so that you and I can be those also who are the recipients of the Spirit, the universality of the salvation of God. Now, two things very quickly before I go on to explain how this in Acts 2 connects to the Old Testament feast. Note, first of all, that God does this in such a way that it is lasting. What I mean by that is that you must not expect another event called Pentecost. You mustn't imagine that each of you is going to have a personal Pentecost, and you must not imagine that maybe in 2022 there will be another event for the Church of Christ like this event in Acts 2. You must not expect that any more than you expect another birth of the Lord Jesus Christ or death of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an event that took place once and for all so that now the Spirit is poured out upon the church and every new Christian, whether that comes from the wombs of the church or from the result of missions, every new Christian receives that gift of the Holy Spirit because of this event on Pentecost. And then the second that you need to notice is that this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophet Joel. And that ties together and knits inseparably the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are many Christians today in the world that put a great divide between the Old Testament and the New Testament. This passage links them and says that what God does in the New Testament is not a new work. The blessings that God gives in the New Testament are not new blessings. The covenant that God establishes in the New Testament is not a new covenant, but all are fulfillment of what God was doing in the Old Testament. Joel prophesied, this is going to come to pass. Your children will prophesy, not some other children, but the church's children and women and slaves and so forth. Same covenant, same benefits of salvation, the same work of God now brought to maturity in the New Testament. Well, what's the connection between this and the Old Testament? I said that Pentecost is a celebration of receiving. It becomes plain to you how that Old Testament feast is fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. All of those acts Activities in the Old Testament where they receive from God the harvest was typical of receiving from God the spiritual harvest. Think about that Old Testament harvest for a few moments. What was it that came into them under the blessing of God when God made the earth fruitful? When God sent the rains and then the sun and the crops grew and the animals gave birth. What were those for the people of God in the Old Testament? In one word, it was their life. It enabled them to live. Without those earthly possessions that they received from God, they couldn't live. But then, understand, it's not just wheat and barley by which they made bread and cornbread and all kinds of other things that they ate but it was the crops that they used to feed their cattle, which they brought for the sacrifices. It was the olive tree that produced olives from which they received oil that they used for cosmetics and perhaps for medicine. 
and oil that they also used to light their lamps so that they were able to see at night. And the harvest was their vineyard, which produced grapes, from which they made some wine that gladdened the heart of man and made their hearts merry. Very carefully understand all of that. The abuse of wine is warned about right here. But there is a use of wine, and the Old Testament makes that clear. Now, think of that. That was their life in the Old Testament. They received life from God. And all of that was a picture of the spiritual life that we receive from God. Old Testament was all pictures along with the reality that sometimes hid the reality. The New Testament, the pictures are gone. We're mature Christians, but now we receive from God the reality. We receive it. The harvest has come in. The Lord Jesus Christ has been sacrificed. He's earned for us everything we need to live and flourish and produce fruits and have joy and peace and confidence and zeal. Hope and faith and love and all of the other blessings. The forgiveness of sins at the heart of it all. Jesus Christ has earned them for us. And now Jesus Christ gives them to us. And we stand with outreached arms and open hands and receive from God these great blessings of salvation. Now you understand why Pentecost, which we all understand to be the outpouring of the Spirit, was on that day. Or to put it differently, now you understand why the Spirit was poured out on that day that for thousands of years they had been celebrating the reception of the harvest that gave them life and enabled them to flourish. Now they receive from God the blessings of salvation by which we can flourish. What does Pentecost mean today? Very simple. You understand it now. That Old Testament type is fulfilled. It's a gift to understand. You shall receive, Peter said, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The people of God in the Old Testament knew that too. The prophecy of Joel, read that today in your devotions time. Read Joel chapter 2, but start in chapter 1 and hear all the threats of judgment of God, and hear all about the locusts and the other forms of bugs that ate their crops, devastated their vines and olive trees so that there was nothing left. Nothing. The plague of locusts, that's Joel. And yet in the midst of God's prophecy of judgment comes this prophecy of hope. It's a gift to undeserving people. And we sit here too with our empty hands outstretched to receive from God what God gives to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Pentecost means today. We receive everything in Christ. But now look again. We return what we have received to God. And if on Pentecost we imagine that the only thing we do is receive, then we have missed the important point of Acts chapter 2. What does this mean? What they saw, these people who didn't understand what it meant, what they saw was not only that these 120 had received the Spirit, they saw these 120 giving back to God that which they had received. Now we need to understand that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Joel explains Pentecost in chapter 2 when he says, In the last day I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and they will prophesy. Listen to what the prophet said in the Old Testament. When the Spirit comes to the people of God, they're going to prophesy. And then he goes on and says, On my servants and on my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And so in the New Testament, that's what we need to think about. 
not only for 2,000 years ago, but for 2022. When we receive the Spirit, we will prophesy. And if we imagine that we have received the Spirit and do not prophesy, then it's only an imagination that we have received the Holy Spirit. Peter understood that when he explained to the multitude, the crowd that was gathered, you're wondering what the speaking in other tongues means? I'll tell you what it means. They're prophesying. They're speaking the word of God. Now, we often misunderstand this in Acts chapter 2. We focus so much on the different languages, which is very important. That's why we Gentiles, Americans and Dutchmen and African and Chinese and Italians and Polish and Germans and all of the rest, that's why we are part of the church of Christ. The languages were our languages, not Hebrew. Not Hebrew. And that's a testimony to us that we may be saved and we don't need to become Jews to be saved. We're Gentiles and we're of the stock of Abraham. We often focus so much, though, on the different languages, we forget the fact that they were speaking. And they were speaking the wonderful works of God. Focus now on that. Forget the different languages, important as it is, as it is. Listen to what they said. Listen to what they were doing. They were prophesying. What was the sermon about that they spoke? Ask yourself. What were they saying? What were they explaining to the people? Well, it's what Peter was saying and what Peter was explaining. You crucified Christ. God would not allow the crucified Christ to remain in the grave. God raised him up from the dead. That's what's going on here. And that resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who ascended into heaven now is back in us. In us. And he in us is the explanation of us speaking to you. That's the only reason we can, though we know our lives are at risk, just as his was. You crucified him. We're followers of him. You are going to threaten us. We don't care. We're bold. We're zealous to speak about him, about his cross, about his crucifixion, about his suffering, and about all of the benefits that come to us through him. That's what they were speaking about. That's what Pentecost is about. The people of God who receive Jesus and Jesus' spirit are people who as soon as they receive, return by prophesying. Now you can understand another part of the Old Testament feast. And that was the requirement that as soon as the harvest began coming in for the people of God, they had immediately to take the first part of that first part of the harvest and bring it back to the temple. And what did they do with it? They waved it before the Lord. I used to think that that waving was like this. Now look, another motion is important, back and forth. God, can you see this gift we are bringing to you? That's not completely wrong, but the better motion now is this. And I'll turn sideways so that you can see it. The motion was this. They received from God and they gave back to God. They waved to themselves as a symbol that what they had in their hand, they got from God and now they waved it back in a symbolic gesture that they're giving it back to God. Everything that they receive from God, they again return to God. And this was symbolic of the fact that everything that they receive from God, they were going to use in the service of God. Not just a little bit, and that has comparison to us too. It's not just that we get one day of the week for God and all of the other days of the week for ourselves, but all of the days of the week are devoted to God. This one in a special way for worship and rest, but all of the days we serve God. We give everything back to him. Everything. And we do that primarily by speaking. By speaking. Prophesying. 
Do you prophesy? That's the question we go home with today. You've received. Have you? Have you? If you have, you will be speaking. You must first receive, though. And the reception of these blessings, now let's be clear on that too, is the reception of the knowledge of what God has done in our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, that came to them by dreams and visions. So you read in the book of Joel, and Peter quotes that, young men shall see dreams or visions, and the old men the same. They couldn't speak unless God had given them something to say. And what they had to say, God gave them in a dream or a vision. Now, God doesn't give us us dreams and visions anymore. This is what he gives us, the word. And no one is able to speak about what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ and everything surrounding what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ unless he first reads the scripture. That's how the Spirit enables us to speak. So here's the first test. Whether you have really received the gift of the Holy Spirit is the question, do you read the Scripture? This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit was doing as I prayed in the congregational prayer at length. For 6,000 years, the Holy Spirit was speaking, first directly to Adam and Eve and then indirectly And then by inspiring the prophets and the patriarchs to speak and to write. And then the Holy Spirit preserved this word so that 6,000 years later, we still have word for word, the word of God. You want to know what God has done in Jesus Christ? Read the word. You want to know who God is? Read the word. You want to know what God is like? Read the word. And you who are spirit-filled and I who am spirit-filled will be a Christian who wants to read the Word so that we are able then to speak about these wonderful works that God has done. That's a beautiful thing. Let, in Acts chapter 2, ring in your ears these words. We hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They were talking about God. They were saying everything they knew about God and what God had done for them, undeserving people. When they spoke, they were not boastful. When they explained and taught, they were not proud. They were speaking about what God had done in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, sometimes we, I say this again now, think that Pentecost is only receiving the Spirit. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. We return to God the gifts by prophesying. Let me sharpen the point by asking a provocative question. Is Holland First PRC here a spiritual church? Be careful how you answer that. What's the measure? of a spiritual church. Maybe I could be even more provocative and say, are you a Pentecostal church? Now there's danger in asking that question because a heretical group has hijacked that term and used it for themselves saying they are Pentecostals. No, true Christians are Pentecostals. People who understand Acts 2 in the proper way are Pentecostals. And we have the right to use that word to describe us. We are Pentecostal Christians. We are Christians who love the truth and the reality of what took place in Acts 2. So let me ask that question that way. Are you a Pentecostal church? All I mean by that is, are you a spiritual church? What measure do you use to answer that question? If you'd examine the people as to whether they're spiritual, what would you look for? Would you look for their ability to speak in tongues today? Different languages without knowing those languages, having studied them? Would you look for a few people in the congregation able to perform miracles? 
Would you look for a church at the front of which the minister put his hand on the foreheads of people and they began shaking and maybe falling down in a dead faint? If that's what you would look for, you would be mistaken and you would not judge that this congregation is a spiritual congregation. But if you would look for what the Bible says in Acts 2 is the fruit of the Spirit and in Galatians chapter 5 and the rest of the Scripture, all those temporary things that took place in the early New Testament, the performing of miracles and speaking in other tongues and so forth, those things are not important for us today except as signs of what the reality is. This is what's important. Do you speak about the wonderful works of God? Are you interested in those things that God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you interested not only in having received what God gives to you, but returning to God in a sacrifice of praise by going home today and at lunch over dinner telling your children and grandchildren the wonderful things that God has done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you interested in that? That's the measure of a spiritual person. We don't make a lot of noise. We don't look for extraordinary gifts of speaking in tongues and doing miracles and casting out devils in that kind of way. We look for this, this. That starts with the church, doesn't it? I was very interested to see in your bulletin today the activity of your evangelism committee. I see two places the evangelism committee is mentioned here. I commend you for that. I pray that all of you are supportive of that work because that's what the church does. The church, having received from God the truth, now returns into the world to speak that truth to others so that many may be gathered in. Now, you can't do that unless you know the truth, so we begin here in this congregation. A spirit-filled church is a church that asks their preacher to come to the pulpit and speak the word and commands the preacher to go in the catechism room and teach the young people and lead Bible studies and bring the gospel to those who are sick and troubled. And all this, he's always teaching, teaching. And if your minister is a good minister, he's going to be teaching you so that you learn what God is all about, what God has been aiming at in his work for 6,000 years, the center of which is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you learn those things as to how they apply to you, then you are able to turn around and say, come here, O ye that fear the Lord, while I with grateful heart record what God has done for me. And you will be ready to give an answer outside of the walls of this congregation to those that ask you, why are you a hopeful people? Why are you not afraid of the economy and war and murder and all of the rest? You hate it. You despise it. You fight against it. But why aren't you afraid? And then you have a reason, an explanation, a teaching. But it's not just the congregation that does that in public worship and in the evangelism work, but all of us do that personally and individually. Let me end the second point briefly by saying, you little boys and you little girls, the book of Joel talks about and says the Spirit is in you. You're able to speak. You may speak about what God has done, and you may tell your friends about what God has done. I think we underestimate sometimes what God is able to do through children. They understood that even in the Old Testament too. Babes and sucklings, God ordained to praise him. And Jesus quoted Psalm 8 in the New Testament. But if that was true then, how much more isn't that true now? when the little children and the young people receive all of the Spirit. And you women have the Spirit. You may speak and teach. You may instruct us, and you do. Now be very careful here too. Don't eliminate now all of the special offices and say because we all have the Spirit and we're all able to prophesy, we don't need preachers, elders, and deacons. Now the Word of God makes very clear that you must be sent If you're going to stand here in the pulpit and preach as a preacher, you must be called and ordained if you're going to be an elder or a deacon in the church. Ephesians 4 and Romans 10 make that very clear. 
Don't eliminate special offices. We still have special offices. Peter stood up as the representative of of all of them and uh, uh, proclaimed officially the gospel. And then also don't take this to mean that if you keep the special offices, you can put women in the special offices because women prophesy in Acts chapter 2. Sons and daughters, servants and handmaidens, those are women. And so some use this passage to justify putting women in the pulpit and the elders' bench and the deacons' bench. Well, the rest of the Word of God makes clear that they may, but beside that, take that argument to its logical conclusion. Because Joel 2 and Acts 2 say women are prophesying, they may be in the special office. Well, then put that little boy in the special office too because the little children, the young people, are prophesying also. And we don't do that. We understand the difference. But having said that and issued those warnings, a spiritual church speaks. Spiritually minded young people don't sit in silence in young people society. They pray God for the courage to speak. Not to speak all of the time, not to be the only one who speaks, but to speak. And you and your employ, when you meet those who are not Christians, you're a spiritually minded man or woman, you want to speak. Well, moms know that, maybe better than dads, because mom's calling is when the little girls are growing up, you teach them to pray and you read the Bible stories to them. And you tell them about the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. You're always speaking. Moms have a marvelous privilege to do that. A high calling. We thank God for women in the church. And whether they're moms or not, they are able to speak and teach. Not here in the pulpit, but everywhere else. In the Christian school, in Bible studies, and so forth. Let's all speak. So the question again is, are we spiritual? Let's humble ourselves. When for a long time we've been pointing the finger out there saying those churches aren't spiritual because they don't love truth. They aren't spiritual because they don't teach doctrine. Or they aren't spiritual because all they're interested in is miracles and speaking in tongues and casting out devils. Let's stop that for a little while and ask ourselves the question, are we spiritual? Am I? Do I speak the Word of God everywhere because I'm filled with the Word of God and I love the Word of God and I love Jesus whose life and death and resurrection and ascension and outpouring of His Spirit into me makes me want to speak. When it does, I'm also going to be very, very hopeful. When I receive and I return, I'm looking up. I'm always thinking about the Lord Jesus who poured out his spirit into me, into the church, and now through the church into me. But that Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he's coming again soon. Those days is coming again, are going to be preceded by all kinds of trouble. So you read in the text, quoting from Joel, that afterwards, afterwards, see there's the forward-looking part of the text, afterwards, last days. Joel talks about signs in the heaven and the earth, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun turned to darkness and the moon into blood. That's scary. When I look ahead, I'm hopeful, but I also understand that there's trouble in the future. Peter talks about these as the last days. The last days. Joel didn't say these would be the last days. Peter takes it, carries it a step further, and says this is the very end. The very end. Judgment. Condemnation, ruin, destruction, fire, smoke, burning. That's what's coming. 
But that's coming because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to destroy all his and our enemies. He's going to destroy the form of this present creation, and he's going to make it all new. He's going to take sin out of you and out of me and out of the world. He's going to make again the worlds in which righteousness dwells. He's coming again. Lift up your heads. Your redemption draws nigh. The one who came to you and gave you his blessing, who died for you because he loved you, the one who fills you with his spirit to give you zeal to speak, comfort, hope, fearlessness, the knowledge of the forgiveness of sin, that one is coming again. Look up and wait for him. And when the blood and the fire and the pillars of smoke and the sun is dark and the moon is bloody, and don't be afraid. That's his work. And he who began a good work in you will finish it till the very end. Keep you, preserve you. He loves you. Amen. Father, we thank thee that we have received the harvest that the Lord Jesus Christ has gathered in. But it's not all been gathered in yet. Or rather we should say it's not all been given to us yet. We await yet the fullness of the harvest when our salvation will be completed, when sin will be abolished, when peace will abound and reign. We look forward to those days We have received the blessings. Forgive, Father, when we fail to return them to thee in that wave offering. And increase us in that ability and will and work. And teach us and our children to look to the days to come without fear. And anticipate with eagerness the coming again of our Lord Jesus in whom is all of our salvation. In his name we pray, amen.